We're doing Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. We've been reading the letter to Ephesians. And the reason why is because I don't think there's probably a more concise, really, summary of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be in Christ, what it means to follow Him. Then the book of Ephesians is a place I think a lot of people go um, for a very short summary. And chapter 4 um, is a very significant turn in what's been going on in the letter. You'll see in a moment. Um, up until this point, there has only been one command given, which is interesting because people usually think of Christianity when you ask people what does it mean to be a Christian, they start listing commands of living a servant lifestyle. Paul has summarized Christianity for three chapters, and the only imperative he's given up to this point is to remember. To remember who you are apart from Christ and remember Christ's love for you. But chapter 4 is the place where the book takes a turn, and he says essentially, having established all of these things, here's what Christ calls you to. So I'll read chapter 4, verse 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing one, with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill fill all things. And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up every way, in every way, into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together, By every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for this picture of the church, and this picture of unity, and the picture of gifts, and the picture of maturity. And as we discern Your Word, we need Your Holy Spirit to come to convince our minds and our hearts of what's true here, to persuade us and to change us, dear Lord. We need Your Spirit to attend the teaching of Your Word. Uh, Be with us, dear God. In Your name we pray. Amen. Alright, so I want you all to imagine a scenario. This is something, this is a free parenting advice you're going to get tonight that you're not going to find anywhere else because we've read all the parenting books. But there's something that comes up in parenting Nobody addresses, but you need to be prepared for. Once you become a parent, your car battery life declines precipitously. Like before, I actually don't think before I had a child, I actually even ever bought a car battery. Now we buy like three a year. I don't know what does that. Somehow like the rotation of the earth has changed or something. And um, I think it has to do with little fingers just liking clicking sounds. But um, we replace car batteries all the time. It's insane. But I want you all to imagine this scenario, and it's ridiculous, but just follow me here for a second. 
the car battery in the Odyssey is dead, you know, for the sixth time this year. Um, so imagine me in the driveway, and I pull my truck up next to the Honda Odyssey, and I pop the hood off of both of the cars, and I get in the Honda Odyssey, and I turn the key. And I turn the key, and I turn the key, I pump the gas, which is what people who don't know anything about cars do when they think it's going to start somehow, right? And, of course, nothing happens. And then I get out of the car, and I connect the two batteries and then disconnect them and then walk into the house and explain to Elizabeth, the car won't start, I don't know what's wrong. Now, the scenario is ridiculous. Maybe you followed the order there. I haven't done actually that. I'm just making a point. Um, you, have to, <laughs> you have to connect. Thanks for the vote of confidence. <laughs> you have to connect the batteries and then crank the car. Uh, and if you reverse the order... Nothing happens, you have dead car batteries, and you're frustrated. And the reason that I say that is because it's the same thing with Christ. And what I mean by that is this, order is everything. The right order is absolutely everything. If you attempt the life of a Christian without first being connected to Christ, this is what life is going to feel like for you. You're going to turn the crank, and you're going to turn the crank, and you're going to turn the crank, and try to start it up, and try to change, and you're just going to get more pissed, and you're going to get more angry. Because order is everything. In fact, it's not simply a frustration of like, I just didn't get things in the right order in the Christian life. It's the difference between life and death. It is the difference between hopeless despair... And, and experiencing the rich joy and confidence and security that you have knowing that you're loved by God in the midst of frustrating life. It's not like if you get the order mixed up, you're kind of okay. It's if you get the, more, the order mixed up, the car never starts. And this is the structure of Paul's letter. His structure is the structure of Christianity. For three chapters, he has expounded the love of Christ for you. For the people who have trusted Him by faith, He has said, Jesus has blessed you, He forgives you, He sustains you, He adopts you, He is holding on to you, He secures you, He gives you life, and He gives you hope, and He gives you peace. The only command He has given during all this expounding of Christ's love is simply this, remember it. Remember who you are apart from Christ, remember His love. This is the order of Christianity. You don't get good so that God will like you, God loves you, and that enables you to change. Order is everything, getting it in the right order. And that order is the opposite of everything else in life. Ask any other religion, and they will be honest. Every other religion says, do your religious observance, improve your morality, and then God will accept you. This is the way that Stanford works. This is how you got into Stanford. Prove yourself, work hard, then get accepted. This is the way employment's going to work. Right? This is the way social life at Stanford has worked. Become the right sort of person, act the right way, come across the right way, and then you get to have friends. This is why life feels like it's driven by fear. It's because everything hinges on your performance, and there's no validation, and there's no acceptance, and there's no guaranteed love apart from performance. That's not the way of Christ. His love actually precedes our transformation. 
Because just like jumping the car battery, His love enables us and actually gives us the capacity to begin to live a new life. Order is everything. And so some of you might feel like you're trying on this Christianity thing. All right, I want to I do this Christian life. I'm not sure what I think. I'm going to try it on for a while. I'm going to try to live it. I'm going to try to be a new person. And you're turning the key. And this is what it feels like. You're starting over. And you're starting over. And you're starting over. And you're starting over. And nothing seems to catch. Because you're trying to live as a Christian you haven't attached yourself to Christ. You haven't experienced the love and the blessing that comes preceding your performance and not conditioned on your performance. The new life we're called to in Christ is the response of actually joy and gratitude. It is not something pursued out of fear or anxiety. His preceding love and acceptance actually gives you the power to change. This is the word, therefore, in chapter 4, verse 1. It's that entire point. It means, Paul is saying, therefore, the previous three chapters, go hang out there again. Spend time in them. Rest in them. Hear the good news of them. Therefore. And now he does say, this is what new life in Christ looks like. Now turn the key, now that you're connected to Christ. This order is the difference between struggling to be free, which is horrible. If your whole life you're struggling to be free. It's the difference between that and being free to struggle. That you're in Jesus, you're covered, you're renewed, and you're restored. And now you're actually free to work out life, and it's messy. But you're free, it's okay. Order is everything. So chapter 4, for the next three chapters, Paul begins to describe and actually give us exhortation and commands. This is what new life in Christ looks like. And what I want us to see tonight is he gives us, when Paul first jumps in and like, all right, I've spent three chapters on what it means for you to be in Jesus and how good it is. And now I'm going to talk to you about what you should do differently because of that. It's very interesting what he begins to talk about. And I think actually if you went around campus and you probably asked people, what do you think Paul or what do you think the New Testament or what do you think Christianity thinks Christians should do? What are the big imperatives? What are the big commands? What are the big things Christians should be about at Stanford in life? And I would guess that you would get something along the lines of, well, they're not supposed to get drunk, and they're not supposed to have sex, and they're not supposed to do drugs, they're not supposed to cheat, and they're supposed to be a good person. When Paul begins his first command, imperative, of this is what new life in the Christian, for the Christian looks like, that's not what he talks about. He actually says, Therefore, prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, And verse 3 is where he fills that out. Verse 2 explains the the way you get there. This is what it looks like. like. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul says, all right, all that being true about you being in Christ, here's the first thing you need to pursue. This is the main, this is the big thing, this is the burden of the Christian life that we're pursued. This is the calling. Guess what it is? Connect with Christians. Be unified Seek unity. Become a community. That's his first big thing. For the life of a Christian, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. His command is actually to the church is to be eager. The, the word be eager is a very, it's a very strong word. It means to be in crisis. Let this be your crisis. Let this be, some translations say, make every effort. Your main thing, if you're in Christ, that you're aiming for, is the unity of God's people. You're made 
to be connected. From the very beginning of this letter, we've been saying it all quarter, Paul has been saying the whole Christianity thing, guess what it's not about? This is, this is a small slice of it. It's not about just getting a free pass on bad things you did. That's a slice of it. That's a part of it. It's even an important part. But all of that actually serves this larger purpose of chapter 1, verse 10, to unite all things in Christ. Connection is the purpose of Christianity. That's the story. Is that we be restored with Christ, chapter 1, verse 10, but also chapter 2, verse 19, with each other. That there's horizontal, there's, sorry, there's horizontal healing and there's vertical healing in relationships. We were made to be connected. That's the big story. And this is why loneliness is the worst thing in the world. Loneliness is the worst thing ever. This is why when we're lonely, we have to find ways to sedate ourselves because we're made to be connected. This is why, I've joked about this before, it's just true. When I wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning, I'm terrified and I have to look at Twitter because I'm so lonely. And, and Twitter keeps me from being lonely for like the next 15 minutes. Or I have to turn on Netflix and just pan through and sort through you know, all the different TV shows I'm not going to watch for 15 minutes. It's video gaming, it's Twitter, it's whatever it is. It's alcoholism. We have to sedate ourselves from our loneliness because loneliness is the worst thing ever because the best thing ever is connection. This is why we'll actually compromise our standards and maybe some things we hold very valuable simply for connection. There's a, there's a common cultural narrative that's so obvious it's kind of hard to articulate that you know college is this time when people go crazy, right? No, they're going to go off to college. And that stereotype holds, and it's not because college is a bad place. College is awesome. All colleges. Guess what? There are other colleges besides Stanford that are also awesome. The reason people tend to change people's standards and their values change in college is because for the first time in their life, they're lonely. You came from this network and this connection, even if you didn't like them, a family and community that you've been a part of for two decades, and you rip away every connection and go somewhere with 6,000 other people who just ripped away every connection. You know what that is? That's 6,000 desperately lonely people, and we will do anything not to be lonely, and that's actually why we do crazy things in college. It's not because college is bad. It's because it's like, that's what it takes to not be lonely? Fine, I'm there. Right? It all stems from the fact that we need to connect so badly. Because we are made in the image of the Trinitarian connectional God. He is community in and of Himself. And He made you and He made me and He made creation to flourish when we're connected. But our sin separated us from the defining connection and now we don't know who we are. And so we try and we try and we try to connect. And so now our connections are made out of fear. This is why you're willing to date somebody you're not crazy about. This is why you're willing to be with friends that you're not crazy about. This is why you're willing to do things and become a type of person you never thought you would become in certain social settings. Because again, it's just like, I don't want to be lonely if that's what it takes to not be lonely. That's fine. Because we're afraid of loneliness, so we connect out of fear. And Paul is saying, you have connection now in Jesus. Notice what it says. It says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He doesn't say be eager to create, but rather maintain. He's saying, no, no, no. In Jesus, now you have a family, whether or not you know it. Go and enjoy it. Make every effort with great urgency. Seek the unity that you have in Jesus with your brothers and sisters. In some sense, I I almost want to stop right there and let that hang. Maybe I should. 
that Paul is saying, here's the big thing. Connect with your family. That's it. In the new heavens and the new earth, you know what we're going to talk about most of the time? Enjoying each other and how awesome the Trinitarian God is. You know what the main thing the new heavens and the new earth is going to be about? is community. It's how much we enjoy our family. Because it's sometimes RUF can kind of get the reputation for saying like, well, in RUF, but no, 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 I always tell people what to do. I don't give a lot of like instructions like, here are the seven things you need to do to whatever, manage your calendar or repent or whatever it looks like, you know. Here it is tonight. I can't be more obvious and these are Paul's words. Use every effort. Be eager to live in unity with the church. That's Paul's first command. What does it mean? Well, I want to do two things, actually. I want to do what it doesn't mean and what that looks like. First of all, what that doesn't mean. It's not unity for unity's sake. It's not... A lot of times unity can be perceived as, well, that's permissiveness. That unity is found when we validate anything that anybody wants to say or do or think. That's When unity happens is when we stop saying there's one way. And that... That's unexamined wishful thinking. And it sounds nice in a classroom with a bunch of wealthy people in the United States. That Those are the only kinds of people that say something like that. But pluralism has not produced unity. And you can illustrate it very simply on a micro scale. In a simple relationship, do marriages experience unity when both spouses are allowed to say and think and do whatever they want? No. Marriages implode when that happens. Permissiveness doesn't produce unity. It actually produces ghettos. That's what it produces. And actually Christians are, we, are a horrible example of this. Because it's become popular thinking really in the last 200 years or so that Christians need to get together and they need to come together in unity. And the the barrier to unity, maybe you've heard this before, is theology. The barrier to unity is theology in the church. And so if we back off on our theology a little bit, right, Christians can be together. Christians can get together. And what's happened, interestingly enough, is over the last 200 years, as people have sought to experience unity by backing off their theology and backing actually off their commitment to a local church, guess what's happened? The church has splintered incredibly. It's actually when people backed off theological thinking. In other words, the church actually experiences disunity when there's less theology, not more. The church divides when the, church, when, when the truth that's supposed to sit at the center of the church is held lightly, when it's amorphous, when it's malleable, when it can be whatever you want it to be because we don't want to divide by stating strong things theologically. The unity of Christians, I contend, and I think Paul is making the point here, it actually happens when theology and thinking and working out what the Bible means is robust and it's strong. And in spirituality and physics hold this in common. In physics, there's a greater gravitational field when there's greater mass at the center. Within the church, there's greater unity. Guess what? When there's more robust and sweet theology of Christ at the center. There's greater unity when there's better theology. Unity is theology on fire. Guess what? Theology light leads to disunity. 
Unity is not permissiveness and it's not theological wimpiness. Unity is centered on the one church and the one spirit and the one hope and the one Lord and the one faith and the one baptism and the one God the Father. That's an intense theological statement that demands years of study to begin to kind of break the ice on understanding. And you might think that sounds arrogant. Oh, then what you're going to say, guess what I am going to say. We're Reformed University Fellowship, so I think Reformed theology is the best. We can debate about that. I actually think it will produce unity if we do that. And you might think that sounds arrogant to say there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one God and Father, that we're going to, that we're going to live and die by these robust theological statements. But that's why I want to also talk about what it looks like and why Paul talks about what it looks like. What does he say the unity looks like? Walk in the manner worthy which you've been called, seeking, being eager to maintain the unity. What is verse 2? It's where he describes the nature of a person seeking this unity. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Paul says, ah, the key to deep and rich, theologically robust, church-committed unity. Guess what it is? It's not arrogance. It's the exact opposite. The key is humility. It's humility and gentleness. And there's no more un-American, there's no more un-Stanford challenge in Scripture than this word. This word, when the first readers would have read it, would have been offended. It's a word that's actually used in a derogatory way to, to, to connote servility and weakness. And Paul is saying Christian unity, it actually comes through this, through humility. And what humility is, is it's this. Humility is actually just what happens when you read the first three chapters of Ephesians over and over again. It's just seeing yourself the way God sees you. Because we all have our own interpretation of ourselves. We can find it on Facebook if you're wondering what you think about yourself. It's your Facebook you. That's why I have CrossFit pictures on Facebook all with my shirt on because I'm not as cut as I want to be, but I'm leaving it up to imagination, so maybe you think I have a six-pack, right? We all, we're all thinking about Facebook on several levels. Don't pretend you don't either, right? Those pictures are very, very... Cautiously chosen. I don't have a six-pack. Um, I know you're all... Yeah, everybody's wondering. Um, but see, we all have a personal interpretation of ourselves. That we're these independent and strong, autonomous beings that have well, a small propensity to do stupid things. And there's actually... The, one of the reasons we read Confession every week is there's actually profound freedom when you finally... Just see yourself as you truly are. We're hiding. We're hiding from ourselves. We're hiding from each other. And we're hiding from God. We're justifying things. And humility is just finally understanding who you are before God. And again, that's right. just read the first three chapters of Ephesians. And this is the summary. A sinner broken by my own doing and loved. Loved and redeemed. The way Martin Luther said it is, this is a great phrase, simul justus et peccator, at the same time justified in a sinner. That's the beginning place of biblical humility, to see yourself as God does. His creation, broken by my own doing, but loved. And there's no possibility of unity without that humility. Because if, you, if this humility is beginning to grow in your heart, you can't think that you're awesomer than anybody else. It precludes that. It, it's humility and gentleness, but also this unity is patience and bearing with one another. And patience and bearing are hard. 
Here's how you know if you're, if you're in a situation that's going to demand patience and bearing. It will feel unreasonable. That's how you know. If it feels reasonable and easy, that's not patience and bearing with one another. That's Disney World. Patience and bearing with one another is when it is very reasonable for me to not have to deal with this person anymore because it's too hard and I've got a lot of stuff I've got to get to and they also hurt me. Patience and bearing means sticking with people through their weaknesses and through their failures. It doesn't mean endorsing foolishness or sin, but it means sticking with others, being there for them, with them over long periods of time when they're caught up in their own sin, when they're hurt by other people's sin, when they're sick, when they're lonely, and when they're sad and they don't know why. This is the biggest challenge. How many times have our friendships ended? Have we cut off lines between us and a friend? Because patience and bearing with people is hard. And it's so reasonable actually not to. And unless you're growing in the humility Paul speaks of, unless you remember, I'm broken, but I'm loved. You begin to remember that, then you'll end those relationships that demand patience and forbearing. You'll begin to think, who am I? to abandon them in their brokenness. Jesus didn't abandon me, and I gave him far more reason to. The humbling belief in your own sin is actually a vital ingredient into the healing and unity of relationships. You'll experience joy in your relationships when you believe in your own sin because it's going to give you the capacity to love them when you reflect on Christ and the fact that he loved you in your sin. See, it's not just a grasp of your sin. It's also a grasp of Christ's love that gives you the capacity to seek these kind of relationships. The unity of which Paul says is the main thing in Christianity. It's sought and it's maintained through humility and patience. And he calls us to unity. And this is what's fascinating. And one of the ways you can just kind of never... You can never peg uh, uh, Scripture. It's never simple. Christianity is not. It's always in so many beautiful ways counterintuitive. He calls us to unity. He says, seek unity, and here's how you do it, through diversity. Because maybe your instinct is, okay, if he's calling us to unity, this is this kind of like monolithic religion that turns everybody in the same way. But the very next verse is starting in verse 7. We begin to see, he says, and here's how you seek unity. Use your diversity. And you wonder, if everybody, maybe you're thinking, if everybody gathers around Jesus... And and, and he's saying, come and unify around me. Isn't that going to make everybody the same? And the answer is yes and no. Is God's purpose to grow Christ-likeness in you, which means this, to conform you to the image of Christ, which means this, to make you a person of love, that loves God, that loves your neighbor, that loves your enemy, that loves your family, that loves creation? Is God working that out in your life? Is He trying to make us all the same in that regard? Absolutely He is. Absolutely. Does that eliminate your giftedness and your personality and your uniqueness? Absolutely not. Christian unity doesn't destroy diversity. Actually, what it does is it redeems diversity. It even requires diversity. Paul, part of what he's saying is this. Maturity can't happen unless there's diversity. So verse 7 says, But grace was given to each one of you according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then there's these weird verses that seem really complicated but actually kind of make a simple point. Paul quotes Psalm 68. It's a royal psalm that sings of the kingship of Christ and his victory over 
uh, over his enemies. And Paul quotes lines of the celebration, and what you've got to envision is he's, he's giving us an image of a conquering king coming back home and showering his people with gifts. And he applies that psalm to Jesus, saying Jesus has come and Jesus has conquered the greatest enemies, which are sin and death, and he has ascended to be with God the Father after his his victory, and he's distributed gifts to his people. Our diversity is actually given to us by Jesus. Now the question is, how how then does diversity not conflict with, but rather serve unity? And that's where it's really, really important to see the end of verse 12. It's given to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Jesus' gifts of diversity are all to be used in service to others. And there's a, there's a technical, logical structure to verses 11 through 12. God gave apostles, evangelists, prophets, pastors, and teachers. Now, who are these people? Guess who these people are? These are technical offices in the church. They're not just kind of phrases that are generic. They're technical offices in the church. And that means Paul presupposes, guess what? You have a relationship with pastors and teachers, and you're a part of a church. And in a minister's office, this is what's interesting about this. He's saying, so, and he gave everybody gifts, and then he also gave these officers, these men, these people to come and teach Scripture to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So the pastor's job is, guess what? To equip you for ministry. That's what my job is, to equip you for ministry. He doesn't call what I do ministry. He calls what I do equipping y'all for ministry. He calls what Scotty Scruggs does equipping y'all for ministry. David Jones and Bob Crossland and John Ortberg. They don't do ministry. They're equipping y'all for ministry. I actually get to get out of Scripture on this one. I'm just supposed to be equipping. Y'all got to go do all the ministry, right? And what ministry is, what the word is there, is this the word for deacon, if you've heard that term before. It's the Greek word for servant. Equipping you for service. Unity comes when the diverse members of Christ's body using their unique gifts serve others. So even at large group, you get a a small picture of it. I talk. Jess sings. Jason plays the drum. Teddy does the Teddy thing. (laughs) Veronica makes coffee. Carly bakes. Miles does the Miles thing, which is like a Midwestern version of the Teddy thing. You know what would be a terrible RUF is if all the roles of service were filled by someone just like me. I wouldn't even want to be a part of that group. The music would be horrible. (laughs) Everybody's gifted different ways. A lot of y'all have gifts and aren't using them. And I would suspect that actually a lot of your frustration in your life of faith comes from the fact that you have beautiful gifts for serving and you mostly use them for yourself thinking, oh, what Christian maturity is, is I've got to take all my energies and my resources and I've got to cultivate me. And God's saying, no, 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 no. Maturity comes when you take on those energies and resources and actually cultivate others. The heart of disunity is not diversity. Diversity is not the thing that opposes unity. The heart of disunity is self-absorption. I've been listening to stories of college students for 10 years now, and I've listened to relational drama and friendship drama for 10 years. And most of our relational drama 
if not all of it, comes from self-absorption. It doesn't come from, I'm trying to love these people well. It comes from, these people aren't loving me the way I want them to love me. An intense focus on self and orienting the life and relationships around self instead of orienting your life and relationships around serving others. And when the beauty of Jesus actually sets you free from self-absorption, you realize, oh, there's actually freedom and beauty and maturity and health in actually making my life about cultivating others, bringing them to Christ, healing, loving, being kind, compassion, staying with others. Here's what you'll do. You're going to do far harder things than anything you would actually do for yourself in a really cool way. You're actually going to be a whole lot sadder than you ever thought you'd be. You, at the same time, will actually be a whole lot happier than you ever thought you'd be. You'll be more connected than you ever thought you'd be. In short, what you'll do is you'll mature. Paul says, the main thing in Christianity is seek unity by using your diverse gifts together for the purpose of maturity. This is verse 14 through 16. What is maturity? It's the end goal. So that. What's maturity? No longer being children. He tells us right there. Not being like a child. What is a child? He he tells us this is kind of obvious stuff. Somebody tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful speech. Paul is painting the image of a boat being tossed back and forth. Right? He's talking about the disorientation of not having a home not having a center, of not having an anchor. And a child is somebody who has no stability and no sense of he, who he or she is. And life without a unifying center, you know what it is? It's just a collection of urgencies that carry you from one urgency to the next. Maybe that's how you feel. You got, you got a midterm tomorrow. And you don't know actually who you are between now and that midterm, other than that midterm. And when you finish it tomorrow, guess what? There's another urgency. And you actually just craft a new identity according to each new urgency. And you're being tossed back and forth. You don't know who you are. And actually, in some ways, you're just receiving a script somebody hands you. Like, okay, here's the, next, here's the next thing I'm supposed to do. And you feel like the collection of urgencies and anxieties has no coherent negative, uh, narrative. And you're alone. And I've worked on a, four college campuses now. And this is by far the loneliest college campus I've ever been on. By far. And it's because here, people are more committed to their individual success story than anywhere else I've ever seen. Radically committed to their individual success story. And everybody else on campus is a tool for that individual success story. And for that reason, there's profound loneliness. So what is maturity? It's being centered. It's being grounded, knowing who you are, and being unthreatened by the storms and the urgencies around you. It doesn't mean you don't take care of them, but it means you're not defined by them. And I want to close with just two aspects of that maturity. And the first thing is this. The first thing is, it's communal. When Paul talks about maturity, he doesn't talk about it in any way, shape, or form as an individual thing. It's corporate. It's actually the church. When he says mature manhood in verse 13, he's not talking about a generic man, like, I hope you become grow into mature manhood or you grow into mature womanhood. When he's talking about mature manhood, he's saying Christian maturity is the church as a mature man, to envision the church as a body having grown into a mature man. When he talks about Christian maturity, he talks about the church being healthy. 
And that's the way we're to measure our own maturity. Christian maturity happens when God community, God's community, and this really this is kind of the end, verse 16, starts to become a place of love. And if you're not coming into and participating with your unique gifts to create a community of Christ-centered love, then Paul will not allow you to think that the fact that you still read your Bible and don't drink allows you to think you're a mature Christian. Mature Christianity is Christ-centered community of love. That's it. Maybe you thought Christian maturity was you getting some vices, kind of taking care of and under control and reading your Bible consistently. That's not Christian maturity. Christian maturity is the community of God's people becoming a place, verse 15, where the truth is told in love. So two aspects of maturity. First thing, it's communal and it is not individual at all. Secondly, that community is a place where this truth is spoken in love. How do we get there? Speaking the truth in love, verse 15. One of the reasons, not the only, but one of the reasons you can't mature on your own is because we are terrible critics of ourselves. We're so full of fear, and what fear does is it warps our understanding of ourselves. And so what we do is we're hypercritical in places we actually don't need to be critical in. And we actually give ourselves a really, really easy time on areas we probably don't need to give ourselves an easy time on. And maturity is a community of truth-tellers. And the current ethos of the world says this. It says... Uh, Okay, here's what truth-telling really means. Affirm the good and affirm what you agree with, and then actually also lie about what you really think about the bad and affirm that as well. Right? And if you're wondering, well, so you're saying in the church and God's people, we're going to say good things and bad things to each other? Yeah. That's exactly what it means. It's actually what love is. This is the Chuck Klosterman principle about leather pants. You all are familiar with this, Right? He says, no man who wears leather pants has friends. You know why? Because all men look terrible in leather pants. And if they had friends, they would have told them that. (laughs) See where I'm going? Nobody ever gave you bad news. You might not have any friends. Speaking the truth in love actually means telling good news and saying the good things. But it also means saying the bad things. And if you're wondering, well, that sounds like it's going to hurt. It is. It's going to hurt. You need to say some bad things and some bad things need to be said to you. But... It's the truth spoken in love. It is bad things spoken not to hurt people. It's bad things spoken not out of self-righteousness. It's bad things spoken from a voice of humility, right? The first thing Paul calls us to. And it's bad things spoken in love. In other words, speaking bad things so that you can experience joy. Because they care about you or because you care about them. Bad things heard in love still hurt, but they actually lead to joy. A community of truth and love, that's Christian maturity. And the question really is, do you have it? Are you moving toward it? A place with pastors. A place with old people. With young people. With poor people and rich people. Happy people and sad people. Him people and contemporary worship people. Right? Democrats and Republicans. Some of y'all think there aren't any Democrats in the church. And some of y'all think there aren't any Republicans in the church. Which is kind of awesome. Actually means it might be healthy. But a place that seeks unity. That's actually achieved through diversity. And it's centered and defined by the truth and love of Jesus. That's Christian maturity. Do you want it? 
Or do you want to hang out in your dorm room and try to get your vices under control while you have quiet times and listen to Matt Chandler sermons on Sunday morning? That's not Christianity. And in some ways, it's kind of cool because Christian maturity is actually a lot easier than maybe what you're trying to do. And it's actually far more beautiful than what you're trying to do by just managing your vices. Because actually, all it means, this is like, again, I say this all the time, it's the least cool application to ever say. It just means getting involved in a church. Isn't that a lot easier than just hanging out in your dorm room Sunday morning and feeling really bad about not your inability to manage your vices? And thinking, oh, I'm not Christian enough because I can't manage my vices. Here's how you know if you're Christian enough. Or here's how to experience being Christian enough or growing in maturity. Go be involved in a church. And I don't mean simply attend Sunday morning. I mean be involved in a church. Uh, most practical stuff, I'll close right after this. I suspect the best decision you could make about your spiritual life in college would be this. To develop a friendship with an old person and to volunteer in the nursery to church. I think if you did those two things... That would probably do more to grow you in an understanding of the gospel and the rich diversity and unity of who Christ is and who his church is than probably a thousand service projects. In fact, I know better than a thousand service projects. I'll close. Let's pray.